Welcome to the... <laughs> no, 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 I can't do that. Let's try another one. Uh, how about this? <laughs> no, no, that won't work either. Let's try this. get on board with that. Let's roll with it. Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. On this episode, I had the great opportunity to catch up with my friend, Paul Snyder. Paul is the Executive Vice President Stewardship at Tillamook County Creamery Association. He's a great leader with a huge heart. We spend time talking about his journey, where his passion to help others came from, his time running global corporate responsibility at IHG, and why he's so excited to be working with an organization as purpose-driven as Tillamook. And hey, while I've got you, definitely consider subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. I have a lot of great guests lined up that, trust me, you won't want to miss. Okay. All right. We are going across the country for this podcast interview. A a good friend of mine who left Atlanta a few years ago. We'll we'll talk about that. Um, Paul, tell everybody who you are and what you do. Jeff, good to see you. So I'm Paul Center. I am the Executive Vice President of Stewardship at the Tillamook County Creamery Association. Um, If you look in your freezer case or your cheese case in your grocery store, you may see our cheese and ice cream. Uh, We are a 111-year-old cooperative, farmer-owned and managed. Our board of directors are all farmers. Uh, And I run stewardship, which is, uh, in most other companies, uh, like corporate affairs, because I've got communications and I've got our government relations and community relations. But uh, I also have our environment community impact group and my background's in corporate responsibility. And so that's why I'm sitting in the seat I'm I'm in. And as Jeff says, uh, yeah, moved out here uh, coming up on two years. So about a year and a half to two years. Uh, What a what a journey the whole country's taken in that time. Yeah, (laughs) right. Every every single thing has changed since you left. That means you just got to come back, Paul. (laughs) <laughs> yes, a couple times I've thought about that. <laughs> um, okay, so I got to ask, when you um, took that that role, which the role is, is so unbelievable, and now that you're there, I've learned more about the company, which I can understand why it was so appealing. Was it a brand that you had a close connection with before? A bit. My wife grew up or spent her high school years in Oregon, in Corvallis. Uh, and I remember the first time we, we came out here to visit her folks uh, for Thanksgiving, she said, oh, you've got to try Tillamook cheese. And so for the longest time, for me, Tillamook cheese was, I thought it was just cheese from the city or the county of Tillamook. Uh, it actually wasn't until later that I understood that it was uh, an actual brand. It was an actual until the, uh, and I just thought it was cheese. It wasn't until actually the opportunity came up and I started to investigate it further. I was like, oh, they've also got ice cream. They've got butter and you know, all the rest. So I didn't have a huge affinity for the brand. But the more that I learned about it as I explored the opportunity, the more I liked the brand and the way that the brand presented itself and the way that the brand produced itself. Um, and then, of course, uh, so many things about the, the company and the cooperative 
just said, wow, this is this is the job I've been getting ready for my whole life. Mm, I love that. Yeah, no, I love that. Now, you have um, infected our family, um, as I've told you, because okay. you, you sent uh, a nice care package of cheese to my house. And um, now my wife is obsessed with the sharp white cheddar. Um, I, I, when I make eggs in the morning for her, I've got to put that in there. Um, it's, it's the grilled cheese choice now. So we are, we are Uber fans, but, but I gotta be honest, like, yeah, like you, I, I sort of knew the brand, but not much about it. But now that I've, now that you've been there and we're, we're fans at our house, we've got the ice cream. I mean, we're trying it all. It's delicious. Yeah. Well, uh, we're glad that you're enjoying, uh, all of our delicious stuff. Uh, you know, this company is in a, is in a huge growth curve right now. Uh, for 110 years, call it, or 105 years, call it, uh, it was really very much a regional brand in the Pacific Northwest. Over 80% household penetration. So it was basically Tillamook cheese and running water. Uh, but um, a number of years ago, uh, they hired a new CEO, my boss, Patrick Kreitzer, and he put the company into a growth mode. And so first went into the West and really expanded out of the Pacific Northwest South into California and Arizona, uh, Nevada. Uh, and then, you know, the board and the membership really liked that because it really grew the company. And for the last two years, we've been on this massive eastward expansion going east to the Rockies. We kind of we call it ironically the frontier strategy because for us, the frontier is the east. And so, yeah, we're becoming more well known and obviously better distributed. Uh, we've got the top growing ice cream brand, the top growing cheese brand. Uh, and so it's an exciting time. It's it's kind of like working for a 110 year old uh, uh, entrepreneurial startup. I love that. I love that so much. And it's so hard, as you know, you've, you've been at some large corporations to get that, that startup feel back. So I'm, I'm excited for you on that. Now I had the, um, I had Jabari Paul, the head of activism for Ben and Jerry's on the podcast recently. And I mm -hmm. asked him, uh, what his favorite ice cream was of Ben and Jerry's. So I'm going to ask you, and I won't limit it to ice cream because you guys have much more, but is there a particular product you put at the very top of your list? So I'm going to pick one cheese and one ice cream. The ice cream is uh, mudslide, which is just uh, just the best chocolate ice cream with chunks of chocolate. It's just the best. I love mudslide. Had some last night. Uh, <laughs> my favorite cheese is our uh, is our sharp cheddar. Uh, so it's you had the you were referencing the white uh, sharp cheddar. We also have got a straight sharp cheddar, which is just it's awesome on eggs or on sandwiches. It's just and sometimes just on its own. I just uh, that's a real, that's a real tentpole product for us. And I just, I just love it. I, we buy it in these little baby loaves, which you'll, you'll see sometimes in the, in the cheese case. That's, that's my favorite. Yeah, no. So because I had to save the white cheddar, the sharp white cheddar for my wife, that's what you're talking about is what I had. And so I loved yeah. it. My, my son and I were going nuts for it. So, okay. So here, here's what I'm hoping to accomplish today on this chat. Um, I find that people like yourself, you, you've been on so many nonprofit boards and helped so many local community things in the places you've been. Um, you've dedicated uh, a great portion of your career to the doing good side of corporate, which, which I'm fascinated with. Um, I want to dig into your past and start to see if we can uncover, maybe you have an easy answer, but you know how you ended up being somebody who cares so much and, and knowing you personally, um, I know that about you and, and everybody knows it about you. So um, I want to go way back and, and talk about where and how you grew up. So, so where did a young Paul Snyder grow up? So I grew up uh, outside of Chicago in a northern suburb called Wilmette. Uh, that's right next to Evanston, where, we're, where Northwestern University is. Uh, if you've seen any John Hughes films, so Pretty in Pink, 
Breakfast Club, uh, Uncle Buck, uh, any of those, those were all filmed around where I grew up. Uh, and so that's what it looked like. It was a really, uh, it was a great place to grow up. Uh, my dad was a lawyer in Chicago and my mom uh, raised four kids uh, and did lots of nonprofit work herself. And so when you ask where, where I sort of care, I think it started honestly with, with seeing my mom. Um, you know, she worked uh, for the American Cancer Society and she worked a lot for uh, a high school that my two brothers went to um, uh, in doing fundraising for them and helping manage a, like their annual fundraising event. And I think also, you know, my folks, uh, we're always, uh, keen to let us know and reminded us that we were very fortunate, uh, in our, sort of like where we came into the world. Um, uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't want for anything. We had a really, really nice home. We had a great education. Uh, we got to take trips and all the rest of that. And, and so they really would say to us right from the beginning, it's like, look, you've got a responsibility, uh, to contribute to the world, uh, and to give back. Uh, and so I think, you know, uh, there are a lot of other things I think that reinforced it along the way, but I know it started there. It started with what I saw my folks doing and the words and the lessons that they taught us. Did, did your family talk about race? Uh, I will tell you that, uh, we did a bit because we actually had an African-American housekeeper. Um, so this is the 1970s. And so, you know, when you're in the Northern suburbs of Chicago, you, we had an African-American housekeeper. Her name was Emily Jewell Underwood. Uh, she came from Georgia, actually. Uh, and, um, and it was one of those things where she became honestly part of the family. When we have family reunions, she comes, uh, she was with our family, uh, and worked for us for, uh, 30 years, uh, I guess. Um, uh, and so for, for us, you know, hearing and, and having her part of our life, uh, was really, really informative. It also, quite frankly, you know, obviously I think back on it now and I cringe a little bit that, you know, she, she was very, very typical. She wore like the white maids, uh, you know, outfit yeah. in, at home, but she also was the one person who could tell my father no. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, and she would, and she would tell us stories about what it was like to grow up in rural Georgia. Um, and she would tell us, uh, things that had happened to her or to her family members. And so um, I remember when in eighth grade, when I was reading um, To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, there were times where I, you know, I would go to her and say, this this really can't happen, right? Uh, and she said, I, I've known people that this has happened to, right? And, mm -hmm. so, um, and so it was it was sort of a more natural part of the conversation because of her presence in our family uh and you know eating dinner with us every night these things came up and so i feel that i was so um so enriched by having her uh you know in my life uh and i don't know that our our conversations about race were necessarily very sophisticated but what they weren't is they weren't uncomfortable uh they, it was something that we could talk about and and you know and when she would she would sensitize us you know she would talk about jesse jackson or she would talk about you know dr king or that type of thing because it was such a big part of the firmament of her life she brought that into the firmament of ours i think and so um so i think that's that's where we talked about race then and uh and i think it 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 certainly informs the journey that i'm on now even now in terms of you know how do i how do i be the most effective ally how do i uh challenge myself and my own either microaggressions in language or in thought um, and, and really stay true to the vision that we have for a society that is so much more just, that is so much more diverse and it's so much more inclusive. I love that. Yeah. What, what a unique experience for you to both have a, um, you know, see from your parents giving back and getting involved in nonprofits and then also 
have, quite frankly, someone of, you know, of color in your life that, that you could have those conversations with. Um, so what about your, where are you in the sibling order? I'm the oldest of four. Okay. And, and what have we got boys, girls, what do we have under you? It's myself then my sister and then two brothers. Okay. I'm, I'm also the oldest of, of four. Um, but I got sisters, uh, everywhere. Um, <clears throat> did any of I them, will, I will, I will say that, I will say that all the three boys have always been outmatched and outnumbered by the one, by the one sister. So <laughs> however many you've got, you're, you're, you're on the wrong side of luck, no matter what. <laughs> I got it. Yep. I believe that. Um, did any of them end up in nonprofits or corporate My giving or anything? Yeah, my sister, um, uh, she uh, works actually for Loyola University of Chicago. Uh, so she works uh, in the president's office there. Uh, and she, all everybody has their own volunteer activities. That definitely is something that I think has bled through everybody. Um, you know, one brother's really involved with his church uh, and that type of thing. So, uh, but Lori's the one who's really, she's she's in academia. Got it. Yeah. That that's one of my hopes with my kids more, more than anything, I think, is I want them to grow up understanding their privilege, um, being empathetic and hopefully, you know, whatever career and whatever they want to do, I hope that they end up realizing that they do have responsibility. So I I can see that coming through with you and your family. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you something amazing. It's, it's also in volunteering with kids, it's another venue where they will blow you away. Uh, one of the first things we did when we moved to Portland with our two girls and they're uh, 13 and 16 is we went and we did a, a soup kitchen for the homeless. Uh, Portland's got a really profound homeless problem, as most metro areas do. And, you know, my wife, Amy, and I were a little bit going, you know, how are the how are the girls going to do? They have never been really in close proximity to homeless people before. Um, you know, we did other types of stuff uh, in Atlanta. And I was just so proud of them. I mean, how, you know, we talked to them, it's like, these are human beings. They uh, probably a lot of them have either um, mental challenges or emotional challenges or that type of thing, but they're a human being. And to see our girls interact with homeless people and do it with such grace and energy, I just, it, it just, it just made me so proud of them. It was another one of those things sort of like, you know, you get proud of them when they do something good in sports, when they do something good in school. It's a whole nother venue as a parent to see them just really shine in it. They're just awesome. Oh, I could I couldn't agree more, and I love that you guys got involved as soon as you you went out. I'm I'm not surprised. Um, okay, so then let's skip forward just a little bit. You you got your MBA at Cornell. I did get my MBA at Cornell. Yep. What was your What was your goal when you went to go do that? Did you have like a master plan? Uh, a bit of one, maybe a master with a small M. I um uh, I had previously been working in hotels uh, on property, uh, actually at a Holiday Inn outside Chicago. Um, and I decided that, uh, there's this fork in the road in front of me. I could either become a general manager of a hotel. Those opportunities were starting to come my way, or I could go and work at the corporate level, but I'd been an English major undergrad. Uh, and so I needed a, I needed to take an accounting course and a finance course and that type of thing. So, um, I chose Cornell because Cornell also has one of the world's or maybe the best hotel school in the whole world. And so I was able to go get a real uh, foundation of business um, type of education in the business school. And I took classes in the hotel school to sort of augment my hotel experience. So then I went from there to Marriott International and their corporate uh, headquarters. Mm, gotcha. And was that a great experience, Cornell? Yeah. Um, uh, first, foremost, and last, because I met Amy there. So. Huh. 
Um, uh, we, it's funny, we both talk about, you know, when you're thinking about schools and we each got into a couple of other schools, Amy actually almost went to Washington university as opposed to Cornell. And that just like terrifies me because like, oh my God, then we wouldn't have met, you know? And so, um, so first, yeah. So, uh, met Amy there. Um, uh, you know, Cornell is a really wonderful place. Uh, Ezra Cornell, who founded the school had this vision of an educational institution where anybody could study anything. He just wanted to facilitate learning. And so Cornell's got everything, man. I mean, they have an animal husbandry school and they've got a nuclear reactor on campus. And, you know, and they obviously got, you know, the typical law school and medical school. Uh, but in the hotel school, you can actually take a class on wines, on actually how to taste and, and understand wines. Um, uh, and you can take that, by the way, as an undergrad for anybody who's listening that's thinking about schools. You can drink legally in the state of New York if you take the Cornell uh, while you're you can drink in the Cornell wine course. Um, so and Ithaca is beautiful. And we had a great uh, a great, really active class. Um, and so, uh, you know, really was it was also uh, a bit of a big deal for me because um, when I was an undergrad, um, I, I didn't feel I was a really like productive member of my undergrad community. I was a bit of a hanger on, didn't really do much. So when I got to Cornell, I was like going, well, I not only want to be productive here, but I also want to make up for my lack of community and, and engagement from undergrad. So um, I really got involved in a lot of stuff, which which I think also sort of spun up a bit of my sort of uh, my desire to serve uh, muscle. Mm. Got it. And and then um, you you end up, I think, at Marriott before you get to IHG. Is that right? Yeah, I was with Marriott for um, two or three years, between two and three years. Um, and then somebody who I'd worked for at Marriott, uh, a very close friend of mine named Isaac Colazzo, uh, he got part, he was part of essentially a, a, a wave of layoffs that happened after September 11th. With, if you recall, the hotel business really kind of shut down. Not like it's shut down today, but uh, shut down then. And so um, so Isaac left the company and then got picked up by IHG. And then he offered me a job down at IHG. And so that's what brought Amy and I uh, from Washington, D.C. down to Atlanta. Mm. Was that a tough a tough sell, getting Amy down? Uh, no, you know, it was funny. Both of us had only been to Atlanta. I've been to Atlanta once to uh, go to a focus group and once to visit uh, a former girlfriend who was there. Uh, Amy had been to Atlanta like a couple times for focus groups. We didn't know anything about the town. Um, and, and we had some really, quite frankly, I'll confess, some pretty provincial attitudes. Like, do they have good restaurants there? You know, what's it like to be, you know, and so, um, and so for us, it was kind of an adventure going to a place that was sort of unknown. Of course, we get there and we realize what an amazing community Atlanta is. Um, and we really absolutely, uh, loved living there, uh, and our two girls being born there. Um, and moving away was, was something that we really had to think about and was a very big deal for us. Mm. And, and, uh, you really became an Atlanta guy because like when we finally met, you were fully, you know, substantiated here and had grown your network. And I know you cared for the city. Um, in 2011, that's what, is that when you got onto the corporate responsibility side of IHG? Well, that's when it became part of my job title. Okay. Uh, uh, for a number of years, I had these side hustles. <laughs> at work, um, where, you know, a lot of them, most of them around sustainability. Um, and so I would do these projects or get involved in some of these, these first efforts that IHG was having around corporate responsibility. Um, and so, 
when they finally decided to sort of create a, a broad-based department with an SVP with some VPs underneath them, I was I was part of that uh, to really establish it. So um, that's when it became my full-time job, I guess is what I would say. And you did that for a while. I did. I, I was in that role uh, as vice president of corporate responsibility, where I was the global lead on sustainability uh, until the end of 2017. Uh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, wa- I want you to talk for a minute about because I've not ever worked at corporate and, and I know, I know, you know, the good that you guys are doing at Tillamook now. I know I'm very close with IHG and, and know the brand. What's it like being able to use the weight of a major corporation in IHG's case global to try to do good? I mean, and, and I guess I'm asking because is it, is it difficult because, you know, there's so many different places to go and maybe not as much funding as you want, or is it the opposite? Is it just like total rewarding? Like, what is that like? Um, uh, yes, it's all those things. Um, the first thing I would say is something that I have learned both at IHG and as I've talked to other practitioners in corporate responsibility is the first thing you notice when you get involved in this is that it's already happening. It's just highly disaggregated. So for instance, you know, at IHG, we had 5,000 hotels. I guess at the time we had about 4,000 hotels, but we had 4,000 hotels, each of them being involved in their community or philanthropic efforts, or some of them were doing sustainability stuff. You know, it was just all massively disaggregated. And so one of the first things I think um, uh, that you do is you start to hoover up and start to understand what's already happening. And then you sit there and say, okay, so how do we then get it to scale? Or how do we then leverage economies of effort or economies of spend so that the impact we're having starts to ramp up? And then it gets pretty rewarding pretty quickly. But I will say um, that is a huge change management uh, hill to climb because all those disaggregated efforts around CR are based on people's personal passions rather than a mm-hmm. corporate strategy. Mm-hmm. And so you're having to convince them, hey, I get why you love you know, this charity or this effort or this thing you're doing, but we're trying to get everybody on board so that the weight of our impact is much more profound than it is when we're all just doing something independently. So, um, so I think that, you know, that, that's something that is a thing for anybody coming into a role where a company is starting to really get its corporate responsibility act together. Um, the other thing I, w- I would observe about any big company or, or my experience at IHG is, um, you know, I've come to believe that whether it's sustainability or corporate responsibility in general, you know, this is just another business innovation. Um, you know, we've had TQM or Six Sigma or this, that or the other thing. I've always viewed corporate responsibility as something that is accretive to the business and innovative within the actual corporation. Um, you know, whether you think of it in a triple bottom line perspective or where you think about it in terms of doing having a good business by doing good. The fact is, is that is it really this is something that raises the entire business, not only employee engagement because you're doing good stuff, but consumer preference and cost and 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 and. Um, and so that's where I guess to, to loop back to your question, you know, it's the most rewarding is when you'll do something that you thought, hey, I'm doing I'm doing this one effort A to get this one B result. And then you do the effort A and you realize you get the B result and also a C, D, E, and on. And honestly, I, in all the years I've worked in companies, I don't know too many other areas you can work in where all of a sudden you have all these unintended benefits or unforeseen benefits that come out of what you do. And they're like presents. They're like surprises you get at the at the end of the day. And so 
that's why I really love the space. Yeah, the ripple effect, as you mentioned, um, that's got to be really powerful. One of the things, so Tillamook um, was a, a, a big supporter of 48 and 48 last year. Um, as soon as this pandemic's done, <laughs> we're going to come out there and do a, a big event. Um, yes, we are. Yep. And I appreciate your support there. And, you know, I think, I think originally you and I got connected when, when you were trying to help me, um, get IHG involved with 48. Um, and, um, and, and over the years we've certainly had volunteers and, um, some, some support from IHG, but I do remember, you know, as you talked about, um, the fact that you had so many, um, hotels that one of the difficulties we were having was that, you know, as you tried to say, well, we're having an event in, you know, New York and got to work with a local, uh, uh, owner of a hotel there. It, it got really complicated and difficult. And so I appreciate all the hard work you did, but it led to working together at Tillamook. It absolutely did. And look, you know, I think that one of the, one of the neat things about 48 and 48, and what, one of the things I was interested in from the beginning is it's your capacity building, right? And that's, as I think about all the nonprofits that I've worked with, um, you know, investing in a nonprofit rather than funding a nonprofit is such a such a more rewarding way to go. Um, both those things take money, time and effort. But one of them is 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 much more profound in terms of helping a nonprofit expand its reach and deepen its impact. And so that's, I, I, you know, I love 4848. We're going to get you to Oregon. We're going to do something huge here soon, as soon as we're able to. I cannot wait. Well, and, and, you know, one of the things that I've realized about 48, you know, when we first started, it was, um, just 150 people randomly would show up, um, you know, random people didn't really know each other and we'd pair them up and put them on teams and, and they'd build websites for the weekend. And what morphed over time was corporations would send people, um, we'd have UPS or Home Depot or Delta send, uh, 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 people, and they would naturally be on the same team. And then what would happen is it would start to infect their corporate culture. They start telling people. And, you know, I, as I've seen that grow and now we're doing um, events completely with companies, you know, we'll, we'll do State Farm and it's all State Farm volunteers, right? One of the things that I'm starting to think about is, I, you know, you, you look at millennials, you know, um, I put that in quotes because we're really talking about, you know, people who uh, want more than just a job. Right. Mm -hmm. they, they, they're not comfortable anymore saying I'm going to work here for 40 years, get my paycheck. And they want to feel good about it. And I know that's really tough, but I just feel like the area of corporate where you are is the place to unlock that. It's the way you can give them something that is so meaningful. Right. So, again, I think of like a, a Ben and Jerry's as well, like they're making ice cream. There's people in the factory They're you know, that's their job but they can feel really good about all the things they're able to do through that job. And so that, that's why I'm so fascinated with the, the role that you found yourself in in corporate, because I think it's really the magic that's going to unlock people's belief in companies again. Yeah, I, you know, I, I hope so. I believe so. Um, and certainly we're starting to see that bear out. I mean, uh, the Edelman Trust Barometer, which is a report that comes out every year, just came out. And, and guess what? Uh, governments are not trusted. Press is not trusted. Companies are trusted, um, and so, um, and you know, one other thing I think about when I, whenever I sort of get along this line of thought is um, uh, the folks at FSG who are the creating shared value folks up in Boston. They used to have a slide in a presentation that was great. I'll try to describe it here uh, on a podcast. But think of like a chart, and it had three circles, and at the bottom of the circle was something about the size of a quarter, and that was the resource base of nonprofits and foundations. And then you had a circle that was about the size of a teacup saucer. 
And that was uh, the resource base of governments. And now imagine a dinner plate. Um, and that is the resource base of business. The fact is, if we're going to address any societal challenges or embrace and actually drive societal opportunities, it's up to us. Business is going to be a really, really, really be a big part of that. And then and so not only can we and not only should we, but we are being told to, as you referenced, by millennials or other people, because, you know, here's the line I draw. They share everything about themselves. Right. So when you're sharing, you know, and when you're sharing about where you work, you're not only talking about the work you do and the business you're in, but the kind of company you've, you've decided to work for. What is its character? What is its citizenship? Uh, and so people are just taking their companies much more profoundly as part of their personal brand. Um, and and that's that means that companies um, have got to have values that align with the values of the people that are working for them or at least are resonant with them or synchronous with them or harmonious with them. They don't have to be the same, but somehow that value interplay between the personal and the, and the company is something that if you get it right is a real lift to the business. And if you get it wrong is a real drag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it has to be, has to be actually lived values. You know, the purpose has to be brought to life. You know, so many companies, they've got all that. Every company has that. Um, but it's the ones that really live it. And so that's, that's what I think you're right. The, the, the idea of business as a force for good to me is is where it's at, and and you can really yeah. make change uh, around that. And I just like companies that are bold. Um, you know, m most companies aren't. That's hard for them to be. But like, you know, again, I'll, I'll reference uh, Patagonia. Um, you know, they they'll put their whole homepage. They're an e-commerce company basically, and they'll put on across their whole homepage a, a cause that they're focused on. You've got to dig down to get to the e-commerce part of their. So I just think like. Companies that are bold enough to do that also are, are, are uh, I think, really special. Yeah, um, I agree with you. And Patagonia is, you know, any anybody who works in CR, we all sort of like sit there and go, oh wow, look at what <laughs> they did. You know, we all we all do that. Um, uh, but you know that you know that also comes, quite frankly, from the top down. I mean, that's just who they are. Right. Uh, you know, and and so it goes back to your point about being authentic. You know, no, no consultant is going to go to a company like Patagonia and say, you know what you should do? You should take down your entire e-commerce platform and just put the cause up. And no, nobody's going to do that. That's right. That has to come from someplace really authentic in leadership. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Okay. So um, as we wrap up, one of the things that I like to uh, ask my guests is um, what their favorite books are of all time. So you can list a couple ones, you know, could be a fiction book you read as a teenager. could be a book you read last week. But if you were to have to like, take two books with you, uh, you're going to be stranded on an island. And these are your two books. Like, what are you going for? Um, so great question. And, and, and I'll try to keep it to, to a couple books. Uh, I, as a, as a recovering or former English major, I just, I think just about anything by Shakespeare has just got so much of the human condition in it. Um, uh, and, you know, I love King Lear. I just love that play. Uh, just just could read that time and time and time again. I think it, it teaches so much about leadership, about humanity, about family, you know, so so there's that. Uh, I really I'll, I'll confess that I'm I really love Dickens also. Um, I've always loved Great Expectations was big for me growing up. Um, I still read some portion of A Christmas Carol every holiday season. So um, so that's those are those are those are two that I would think about that have had sort of like a, an ongoing presence um, in my life. I would say that um, 
another book that I like, and I'm going to say this, and I know what you're going to say because you and I have uh, talked about this before, um, is a book called Factfulness. Um, uh, that book, along with another book called Blessed Unrest, um, in a time where people wondering whether things are going askew or if the center's not holding and if, if we're going down the tubes, you read those two books um, and you realize that there is, A, in Blessed Unrest, the acknowledgement that there is a growing movement, an organic growing movement, not one that's got like a leader in front of it, but a growing movement of people that are saying, you know, we're just going to make things better in our communities, at the street corner, out in the fields, wherever you It's just happening. Um, and that's so, that's so, um, to me, so heartening to think about. It's just happening as a part of humanity. And then factfulness, which is, you know, getting to truth and to facts and to realizing, and I'm going to, I'm going to get in front of you, your rejoinder. We have got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of climate and all sorts of other stuff. We are going in the wrong direction. All sorts of, but to also realize that a lot has gone right. The way that we've eradicated a number of diseases, which obviously right now is something really to think about, um, whether it's polio or others, uh, the amount of education uh, in third world countries that girls are getting compared to what they were getting 50 years ago. I mean, that book has got a whole raft of stuff that basically makes the case that when we put our nose to the grindstone and we actually collaborate across countries or across industries, we can fix really big, hairy stuff. Um, so those two books are, are ones that, um, I guess validated my general approach to life, which is, uh, boy, we've got a lot of hard work to do, but I'm an optimist, uh, hopefully a realistic optimist. Um, and, uh, and we've got a half full glass. Let's fill all the way to the top. I love it. I love it. How many books a year do you read by the way? Um, you're a big I reader, think, right? Yeah, I, th- I think I read, I, I loved your challenge to yourself. Oh, you were going to read a book a week. Uh, was that a couple of years ago? I did that in 2018. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, until you kept taking all those Uber rides as you're trying to read and you guys car sick. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, um, I, I don't know. I think, um, I think I probably read um, maybe 20, yeah. 20 or 30, but I will also say that I'm a big reader of, uh, magazines too, you know, so, uh, things like, uh, the Monocle and Lantham Quarterly and, uh, the New Yorker, which to me is just like required reading. Um, so, um, so I think that's, I think that's it. Maybe I should track that. Maybe I'll do that this year. So actually be able to answer that question. (laughs) Don't let me put my, uh, anal tendencies into your nice flow (laughs) of reading. (laughs) That's not what I want. Um, well, Paul, listen, it was so good. First of all, it was good to catch up. I, I, uh, I I can't wait till I can come out there and we can do a 48 and 48. Um, you know, if there's anything I can ever do to help you, um, let me know you're, you're involved in ripples. Now you're, you're mentoring one of the ripples of hope, uh, leaders. Um, so you're, you're helping me a ton. So you got to let me know when I can help you. Okay. I back at you and thank you. Uh, and yeah, look, uh, thank you, Jeff, because honestly, with these podcasts, as I've texted you a couple of times, it's like you keep like, you know, interviewing some of my favorite people and some of the people that I'm closest to in Atlanta. So between that and yeah, thanks for the offer to, to be a mentor in Ripples of Hope uh, and the partnership with 4848. It keeps me connected to Atlanta, which is a community that I love. Uh, and so thank you for being uh, that anchor. Uh, I'm really, really grateful and appreciative for you, buddy. Thank you. Awesome. Well, it was really good to see you. I, uh, again, hopefully sometime this year, I'll, I'll be out your way. Man, we got some great ice cream waiting for you. So come on out. I'll <laughs> introduce wait. you to the cows. Yes, I can't wait. All right. Good to see you, Paul. You too, Jeff. You take care. Wow. 
you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com, and I really do appreciate you listening. Oh,